Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Yeah. Welcome to the Bitcoin Podcast. We in Outshine. Bitcoins, we got them. Acquire, never sell. But catch us rolling deep like Adele. Bitcoin, blockchains, cryptocurrencies. Three guys faded talking Bitcoin, no fee. That's the free Bitcoin podcast, insane. And adoption is still the only thing, thing, thing that matters, man. Hey, everybody. Welcome to uh, another episode of the Bitcoin podcast. This is episode number 170, right? Yep. My alarm went off. This is episode 170. I'm host number two, D. Host number three, Corey. Cello is out busy today doing family things because he's a family man. So you're doing it without him. Whenever he tells us, hey, guys, I can't make it. Because of family stuff, I picture it's like uh, the opening to Full House or the opening to uh, Family Matters. Why? Like the the theme song. Because it's just so familiar, like so, so happy family vibe. You know, like he's <laughs> just like, like he comes in the house and the camera zooms in and he smiles and he's like, middle tears. Yeah. Anyways. That's what I feel. That's what it feels like. But okay, today, um, are we? Do we have sponsors? Or are we just gonna roll with it? No sponsors today. No sponsors at all. No sponsors today. We will have a brand new sponsor coming at you next episode. Right. But today, we got nothing. Yeah. We're brought to you by, by the Bitcoin Podcast. Brought to you by the Bitcoin Podcast. That's right. Our own pockets. Um, yeah. So. We got some stuff that we want to talk about, right? Yeah. So I, um, at the end of last week, there's crazy ass price spike, right? And it went to like 12,000 and then it dropped down. I'm talking about the price of Bitcoin and then it dropped down and then it hit me. I was like, I don't think this is. Mass adoption. It just feels like mass trading. That's all that's happening. It's like the entire world has woken up and said like, oh, there's a lot of people making a lot of money in a lot of different ways off of Bitcoin. I want to see if I could join in that pool. You know, Mm -hmm. nobody's using it. Nobody gives a damn about (laughs) what it is or how to use it. Um, It's just like, oh, money's going that way. So I'm going to I'm going to go that way, too. And they just throw in their hat in the ring of trying to make some money off of off of Bitcoin and crypto in so, some some way. Yeah, so the conversation. Then, go ahead, continue. I was gonna say. So then, is this mass adoption? Is this what it looks like at first? Just people are like, "Oh, is that how the game theory affects? Is that how is that how the pressure is supposed to work? Like, oh, people are making a shit ton of money." We want to be like them. I'm in there. And then they just sprint to it. 
Yeah, I, um, I think there needs to be a lot of use case. It's like big, I think investing is is natural, right? Like if any any technology, look at any IPO or things like that. People investors come in because they think the technology is going to be worth something more than what it is now, and so they get in and hope that they can make a profit of it later. But like that can't be the reason why it's being used. You see what I mean? Like that's, that's not sustainable. That's basically, I, I don't want to call it a Ponzi scam. That's not a Ponzi scam because there's actually something there, but like you need to have use cases outside of just speculative investment. And that needs to be the driving force for people investing into it. Other than just holding something. Like if, if, if the, if the purpose of the technology is just to hold something so that it's more valuable later, then what? Like, what is that? Like, what's that? What, what's the use of that when it it has potential to do so much more? And yeah, and it what's what I think bothers me, or like what scares me, is that there might be a scenario where, like, if everyone is getting into this technology and blockchain, Bitcoin, whatever you're getting into, because they just want to hold it and not actually use it then that price rise associated with like a this like the scarcity crunch as more and more people try and have, get access to a smaller and smaller diminishing scarcity then you make usability even more difficult so you you make what needs to be the driving force less and less achievable or like more and more difficult to to implement in advance or, or is it the opposite? Or, or is it like, or is that like, do you need this large investment pool of people to jump in and hold stuff and then to gain value so that it gets to the point where you can't use it? So you're forced to innovate in making use something, making it useful. And I, I don't think that's the case, but it's at least an option that I haven't considered much. What was that last thing? Like it's, it's, you're forced to use it. You're like you're you're forced to make it useful because it has such a high value, but no one can use it. Like it's it's like you you don't you're forced to increase usability because it gets too difficult to use, or is that not a thing? So I feel like that's the that's the opposite way to go about it, but it seems to be the direction we're going. But I feel like I'm now. I feel like I'm taking crazy pills because I feel like that's what I've been saying for like two years now. Is that things only scale when they have to? I don't. If I don't, if Bitcoin kept just gaining value slowly over time, but the more users didn't increase over time, then it would never scale. It would stay exactly where it needed to be. And I, I don't have a magic bullet to say like this is the magic number of people that's going to spur innovation in a way that Bitcoin could scale out. I'm just saying that with brand new technology, you know. You don't build the automobile and then on year one, you're like, you know, we're going to need a highway system. We're definitely going to need a highway system for this. No, that's not the way that worked. It was more so like, damn, we have all these fucking cars and they can't get anywhere. And these are causing real problems. Let's start building roads out. Let's start building some infrastructure to to move all this stuff. Yeah, but like people weren't buying thousands of cars in hopes that later on down the line, there's a highway system. They were trying to use cars. And 
right now we have the we have like if, if you've used that analogy situation people are just buying cars and holding on to them because they think eventually there's going to be a highway and someone's going to need some cars and i can sell them for a lot more money and that's that if if that's the point of buying cryptocurrency and that's the reason price rises and that's the majority of what people are actually using the thing for then it's not sustainable that's not it you can never actually build highways because everyone's just thinking about buying cars. That's the whole game. If the game is to buy cars and sell them later, there's no reason for anyone to jump in to build a highway because it's so prohibitively expensive to buy a damn car. So then I would say the next question has to be is what's the percentage of people thinking like that? I, I And know. what's the percentage of people that actually need or want to use it? Well, what if, like, what if it, like, what if it, like, right early on before the price rise and, and like, we had these large fees and it was, like, it was was more difficult to use because we didn't have the software, but it was at least, like, cheap and fast and secure still. You just, you had a more, a a steeper learning curve than it does now. Like, someone who wanted to try and use the technology to do something that you couldn't do, like, build a remittance app or, like, build something that embeds data into the blockchain. Like they could do it because it wasn't prohibitively expensive to do it. Now you can't. And so like as the price rise increases along with the fees increases because everyone's just trying to buy it and hold it for hopes of a better future, the people who want to build the roads can't. It makes it more difficult for them to do it. And like you, you, you see what I'm getting at here, right? Like we're, mm-hmm. we're we're shooting ourselves in the foot because people are greedy as shit and just want to make money. And if we don't yeah. build things that enable new functionality and features and change the way and something to change people's lives, like for instance, you don't you don't buy a console game gaming system unless you have a game you want to play on it, typically, right? Like you, you yes. buy the tech, you, you go get the technology because you need to go do the thing you want to go do. It's necessary to do what you want to do. We, and we're making it difficult for people to make games that forces people to go buy gaming systems to play them. Mm-hmm. Everything's got to be first party software. You, you gotta, you gotta and those games give some, suck. You got to give somebody something to do. Otherwise, you're not going to have this crazy real mass adoption. Like real adoption of people using it and changing their lives. That's not going to happen if everyone's just doing it to try and make money. Yeah. What about this whole lightning lightning network stuff that looks like it's coming along quite well? Does that even even that's at danger, right? Because you have to have a certain amount of Bitcoin to open a channel. You need to do so. Say, for instance, you want to do you want to open up a, like me and you want to open up a channel where me and you are going to frequently trade back and forth based on some set amount that we've put we've de- deposited into this channel, right? So, like, say mm-hmm. we're going to make a bunch of increasing bets, or like we're going to play, um, we're going to go to a bar and say we're at max going to spend. 50 bucks at this bar and we both put in $25 and then we you know, you know buy each other drinks back and forth and we figure out like whoever whoever's turn is just to go up to the bar and get the drinks 
ends up buying it with her tab. So, so you see like the like the who owes what go back and forth between the whole total fifty dollars. That and then we say, all right, finally closed it, and then we settle for how much money each other owes. And so you end up doing two transactions. One transaction to open the channel and one tra- transaction to close the channel. Now, if the cost of doing those transactions is larger than all the money we decided to try and go back and forth with, or like it's at least a r- relative, relatively large percentage of that money, then it's not worth doing. And so like if you make the cost of opening and closing channels in a lightning network prohibitive, then no one uses them. And some people, like some people who I could say like, or would be still be considered big block, big blockers feel like that's the point of what the lightning network is supposed to do is to say, once you have your money in the lightning network, they're going to make it prohibitively expensive to get it out of the lightning network so that basically all transactions are done in the lightning network and Blockstream makes money off of that. I don't think that's true, but it's an argument people are using to say SegWit is garbage. I think mm-hmm. that's that's wrong, but it's 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 like more like the, the fees are ridiculous and it's clear that like increasing the block size a little bit will bring a lot of that pressure down. But I don't know, it's SegWit works great though. I just like people fine. it's like people don't even understand it exists. <laughs> I've looked at the, the code. Coin, I understand what it does. It's it's great technology. It brings the fees down quite a bit. It's just like no one's adopting it. I don't get. It's like there Why? needs to be a Why would campaign. They? Why would they adopt it? What 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 use case do they need to adopt it if all they're doing is holding it? Well, I mean, it's going to make fees come down. It's sure. More, what, are they using the? Are they using Bitcoin? And You're if they are using the user, it, are you talking about the user, like the people who are buying Bitcoin that like would like to have lower fees? Are they using Bitcoin other than just buying and holding it? And if they are using it, are they just on Coinbase where they send it to other Coinbase users, which is free and not on the blockchain? I believe the majority of people recently is that that's Coinbase users. It has to be. It's just so easy to get into crypto through Coinbase. That it has to be Coinbase. Cool, but you're not using cryptocurrency. You can you can have a Coinbase account and buy cryptocurrency. You're not using cryptocurrency. You just you just kind of have an IOU from Coinbase that says you own some cryptocurrency. And it feels like the same shit we we went through two years ago, like in 2014, uh, where it's like the egg. The chicken and the egg, which comes first. And by that, I'm talking about retail adoption, like people that actually build stuff and want to give it to you for money, accepting Bitcoin, or people wanting to spend it. I'd say and the number of businesses have grown, but they're not like people aren't really. I, I would I would venture a guess that most people aren't actually spending their Bitcoin. I actually spend a good portion of my cryptocurrency regularly. I use my shift card very regularly, but I don't spend Bitcoin. I usually, well, I usually spend my ether or my Litecoin. Yeah. I spend either one of those. You just save your Bitcoin. Yeah. I don't have much anyway. 
like relative to the to total amount of cryptocurrency that I own, Bitcoin is relatively small. It's same here. But I'm just curious. Would anybody spend it? I don't know. Like it, I don't, if it's if it's prohibitively expensive, there's no reason to. And I just I worry about like this massive influx of people wanting to get in on it because of the price rise, which just makes which exacerbates the current issue that we're having. And whether or not the the coin's going to be able to withstand that influx of people who are just buying cryptocurrency and not using it. So we see zero increase with like usability and utility and network traffic of legitimate services changing people's lives. But a massive influx of people trying to get in on the scarcity. And that scarcity crunch as more and more and more and more people try and buy a more and more and more limited supply of Bitcoin. What that does to the usability of the currency. I don't... It, 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 it almost is like Bitcoin is... I'm going to use a curse word here. It's like Bitcoin is force fucking a paradigm change because it's Harvey Weinstein a paradigm change because the only way it seems like people to be comfy is if people start thinking in Bitcoin and then all of a sudden that transaction fee of 0.006 or whatever isn't that big of a deal. They're like, oh, the transaction fee is only 0.006 Bitcoin? Oh, no biggie. Good luck with that because everyone is like, People like to say they're maximalists of some sort. Every everyone in this space right now is probably a U.S. dollar maximalist because they're looking at their portfolio, looking at the U.S. dollar value of everything that they have, well, and trading yeah, according not, to that. And if you you, as long as things I'm are working that way, then you're not going to get that paradigm change whatsoever. The U.S. dollar has to go away, and it that needs to be stable. That is the end game. Well, I don't see that oh, happening. Bitcoin. That's what it started as. I don't. I don't see that as happening. I think that's. Of course, like, we don't see that happening. We're. Just, in this time of humanity. Yeah. Like we will never, we couldn't even possibly think of a world that existed without the U S dollar. It's going to happen. Like there's no, like people need to realize that I'm not saying that as someone who doesn't like the U S dollar, I'm just saying that the U S dollar is not always going to be the thing that's on top. That's just, that's just how fucking humanity works. But that being said, it is interesting. And I think at that time, I think that is the only thing that causes it to be okay or like a hard fork that changes the transaction fee. Um, and we all know how lovely forks are in the Bitcoin community. They love it. Yeah, I hope that the technology like adapts itself and grows. And like as Andreas Antonovich would say, like gracefully scales and starts to incorporate the use cases that it can't now by scaling and then a new set of use cases come in that would like that push the limit of the, of the technology, forcing it to then adapt and try and scale again. Um, but I think we're kind of at our limit in terms of what it's currently capable of and something has to change for it to, to move or else that value just goes somewhere else. And that's maybe yeah. where other cryptocurrencies come in and we just increase the usability or like the uh, uh, ability to trade, within the, the different cryptocurrencies so that you use different cryptocurrencies for different reasons. And that's, that's the future forward. And Bitcoin is just stuck as this thing that doesn't get used much other than for people to just hold. Hold value in. 
Well, I mean, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but that there's a lot less irrational things about markets than people wanting to put a bunch of money into something. Yeah, but I don't like. I, I think if people are betting on it becoming this thing that holds value, it it can't just continuously grow, and it's not stable. And the way that it is growing isn't sustainable for a long period of time. I'm not saying it's going to crash now, but eventually there's going to be an issue associated with it and it will crash hard. I just don't know when and what it'll crash down to. Like for instance, like it yeah. could, it could, ju- it could jump up in price so much, so ridiculously that it's crash is still far above what we're currently at. But that there, crash cripples integrity. Yes. Like it, 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 cr- it cripples a lot of things. And, and it it's going to be a network effect of banks going, hey, I tried to send $5 million and the Bitcoin fee was $575,000. So I'm just going to not do that and use like Ripple or something. Good luck, Bitcoin. I don't know. It's hard to say. Hard to see the future from here, but it's like, very true. I don't, I'm not nearly as like starry eyed as I used to be with I'm I'm just I'm waiting for something bad to happen now as opposed to like looking forward to all of the cool shit that could potentially happen because I see the way like the road we're on is not a healthy one. Now, it's, it's not, not it's not the entire it's not the entire cryptocurrency and there are things that are doing cool stuff that I think will eventually grow into something that's going to be that could potentially replace this if it crashes. But it's I don't know, it's just it's it's hard to see. I'm curious about what other people think. And it's 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 sentiment as well, I believe, is that you all of the places that we go to get in lines to information as, as best as possible. The you've got to get through three to four money convert three to four price conversations <laughs> before you can start talking about okay, like what are people actually building out? What are people building to do things with? And on top of that, it's starting to get so fucking confusing. Like, I feel like if we did what's Bitcoin in 10 words or less now, it would be almost impossible for some people to answer, which just makes the gap from early adopter to early majority, even bigger majority, even bigger, because you're just adding more confusion and more confusion. Now there's atomic swaps. I got a buddy who's been with me the whole ride who really doesn't want to know about Bitcoin that bad, but he's a great, he's a, what I call an advanced user. He's got his own private keys. He learned all that. Uh, he learned how to store it. He learned how to make a cold wallet. Like he knows all this. And then I'm like, man, atomic swaps are so great. And he's like, atomic swap. What the hell is an atomic swap? So I'm supposed to go to Foot Locker and get my new J's and use the atomic swap network. When I walk up to the counter, I'm going to say, Hey, are you using atomic swaps? And the cashier is going to say, yes, I'm absolutely using atomic swaps. No, that's not going to happen. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's so low stack. That's so, so low in the stack of technology that in reality, when this is a mainstream thing, you're like, you're not going to have it. You're not going to have these options. You're just going to do it. It's just going to work. Yeah. It's a long road not, to get there though. Yeah, I'd say so. Jeez. That's so, going to be uh, a long road. Let's uh let's move over to our interview. That's been a decent amount of us being naysayers for a while or, or being scaredy cats. Yeah. 
We're probably nay saying scared cats. We're both of two. I don't know. But anyways, uh, this is Amy Wan, right? Yep. So so Amy Wan. Give me a second here to do uh, my profile. Go to my profile program. Bring up Amy Wan. We did this interview Super today. It was pro. great. Super pro. Amy Wan's a lawyer. Damn good one. She started a startup called Bootstrap Legal. Um, let's see. Turning specializes in real estate syndication, but now she's like helping people fund from the crowd. A crowdfunding like I don't know, advisor, legal advisor. And um man, it was a great interview. Um and she's trying to what it seems like is be the spearhead of legal professionals that can give you advice if you are trying to do an ICO, how to do it, how to be, I don't know, just how to cross all your T's and dot all your I's when it comes to having a, you know, a real utility versus a security and how you should uh, do your token issuance and maybe read one economy book. I think that was a lot she said in there is like people don't realize they're building many economies and then they're just not doing that really well. So it was a pretty good interview, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. So um so here's Amy Wan at AmyWanLaw.com, bootstraplegal.com. Here it is. All right, today's special guest, we have uh, Amy from Bootstrap Legal. And I wanted to kind of give you a chance to kind of tell our audience a little bit about you because uh, I was kind of curious. I didn't know if you were kind of like a, in the legal field and then you kind of pivoted because now I'm seeing like there's there's law firms saying, hey, contact us if you lost money in a fraudulent ICO. And that's that's kind of where we are in the world right now. So I, I wasn't sure if you you know had an initial interest in the legal field or you were in the crypto and you kind of just merged the two interests. Um, you know, just. Tell people a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. So um, I am an attorney by training, specifically a securities transactional attorney. So what that means is whenever people go out and raise money for anything, um, I'm the one who sits there, drafts the legal paperwork, helps them structure the deal to make sure that they're doing it compliantly and making sure that, you know, at the end of the day, when they exit and they get their money or whatnot, everyone's happy and no one feels like they've been gypped. Um, I started my uh, career actually in the federal government in you know in the U.S. So um, actually did international regulatory affairs for a while. Um, so what that means is basically you know like I would go to the WTO specifically. I was on the TBT committee, and any time that there was regulation that, you know, uh, one of our businesses didn't like, we'd knock on the door of the other country and basically complain, try to make a case for why their regulation was protectionist. Um, after I left the federal government, I joined a real estate crowdfunding platform um, as their general counsel. And that's when the U.S. crowdfunding regulations or the JOB Act regulations were just coming into play. So I was, you know, one of the first attorneys that really got to go ahead and utilize them. You know, it's funny, I 
I bought into Bitcoin back in 2013 and then the whole Mt. Gox thing happened. So then my attention really shifted a lot more towards crowdfunding. But, um, you know, what basically happened was uh, after the startup, I became partner at a law firm. This is, you know, all I did every single day was draft these legal documents. And I got to a point one day where I was like, man, if I have to do this for the next 30 years, I don't know what I'm going to do. So the, <laughs> um, so at the beginning of this year, I left my firm and started a legal technology company. And basically, we created software that automated my former job. So I basically made software that would automate the drafting of essentially real estate, private equity and crowdfunding campaigns, right? Um, as we started to expand into other verticals, I was getting a lot of calls about ICOs. I looked into potentially automating those documents because, you know, after the SEC came out with their Dow press release, all the law firms just raised their prices for legal representation on an ICO to really high amounts. Ultimately concluded that now is not the right time to automate these documents. Um, but in the process of exploring the whole ICO thing basically came across a much larger issue that I think is more scalable, has a larger potential market. And that is the fact that smart contracts are actually incredibly vulnerable. Um, so if you look at like the Dow hack or a lot of the parity wallet hacks, um, they're all built on smart contracts. And right now I think there's a fundamental issue with smart contracts. So that's what I'm trying to fix. All right, that's a great. That's a that brings me to like a, a kind of a, a interesting question that I've always been wondering. How does I guess we'll just specifically tailor to U.S. regulation. Like, how, how does a smart contract become legally binding, or it, can it be? Does it need to be? Does there need to be additional framework on top of it that then gives us some type of legalese associated with whatever agreement is made when using a smart contract? Yeah, sure. So. Um... If you look at American law, which is based after UK common law, a contract is nothing more than an offer, an acceptance, and consideration. Consideration is basically some form of, it can be a payment, it can be, you know, you're basically giving up something, right? There's there's not really anything that says that a contract has to be in writing. It doesn't have to be in English. The way I view smart contracts is that it's essentially a binding contract with an execution mechanism built in. At the same time, I know there are a couple of folks out there who disagree that smart contracts are actually contracts. Um, you know, that's I think that can become a very legal philosophical discussion but you know if you and I were to go a to a bar and we bet that I don't know some sports team was going to you know win this game and you know I was going to give you five dollars if they won you were going to give me five dollars if your team won that's a contract it's just a verbal contract right so to me it doesn't matter what the form is whether it's in code or writing or verbal or on a napkin, to me, it's really more about is there offer, acceptance, and, a cons and consideration. I think the difficulty there lies in what happens in the edge case that 
something goes wrong, who's to blame? Is it the person who wrote the smart contract? Is it the person who entered into the smart contract? And if something goes wrong with the smart contract itself, which you're seeing in some of these quote unquote hacks, who do we blame? Do we blame the system? Do we blame the person who wrote the smart contract? Do we blame the the other person who entered into the agreement that was the smart contract? Because it's it's like the smart contract is the document. So who is the creator slash culpable person when shit hits the fan? Yeah. So the answer is it depends, right? Yeah. So let's <laughs> think about think about a normal contract, right? If you and I were to enter a normal contract, um, if I break the contract or if you break the contract, then <clears throat> one of us is going to be liable, right? But think about, for example... You know, I, I know a lot of small business people or freelancers or whatever, they can't afford an attorney. So they go on Google, they find a template contract, and sometimes they don't even read it and they just, you know, sign it and execute it. In that situation, um, which is what I think is going to happen with a lot of smart contracts, right? Um, you are entering into a contract. You maybe haven't read it. You don't even really know what the contract says. And so how can the creator be liable if, you know, you didn't even take the time to read it or understand it or make sure that, you know, it actually reflects the agreement that you're trying to make? I've had so many, you know, freelancer, social media, marketing friends be like, hey, I can't afford an attorney. Like, can you look at this for me? And they pulled it off of like... Google and I read it and I'm like, you, you do realize this contract is like the exact opposite of what you would want. Right. And they're like, Oh, really? Why? And then I have to sit there and explain it. Same thing for smart contracts. Right. So now there's all these smart contract platforms out there trying to create template contracts. Hopefully the users will understand, um, you know, what they are getting into Um, To the extent they do understand, hopefully they may be modifying the smart contract to actually reflect their agreement. But the vulnerabilities I see in smart contracts are their coding errors, right? Because you you can't say that the best lawyer can sit there and write a perfect, disputeless English contract. And I don't really think that the best coder in all circumstances can sit there and promise that they'll write perfect, careless, disputeless smart contract. So you've got coding errors, you've got vulnerabilities, right? The more complex you make these smart contracts, the more prone they will be to vulnerabilities. The DAO smart contract, um, when the hacker hacked it, they didn't violate any terms of that smart contract, They, but they did inviolate the intent or the spirit of the contract. And, and right now, in terms of execution, that is something that a computer cannot sit there and make a judgment of, well, you know, even though it didn't violate the terms, it violated the spirit, right? That's that's a whole um, concept in law that we call equity or fairness, right? At the end of the day, is this fair? Is this what the parties intended? If you violate the intent of a contract, it's still no good, right? And then, of course, at the end of the day, you know, human beings are the most creative species in the world. <laughs> they are 
you know, they will find the loopholes, right? They will go on and do do unsavory acts that they're not supposed to do. And the truth is that even if human beings are fickle, mm-hmm. um, circumstances change, right? And so um, I think in this, I think idealistically it would be fantastic if we could say, oh, great, people never need to modify, amend, or terminate their smart contracts. But in the vast majority of cases, I I don't see that happening. And and you can even go back to the very first examples that, you know, Nick Sabo, the guy who invented smart contracts, you can go back to those examples and sit there and just poke holes in those scenarios. Well, I wanted to ask you, uh, if I take those same rules on those same scenarios and uh, put the spotlight on SAFs, because my day job, my company is doing one, and I kind of want to get your opinion on, uh, you know, Marco. When I when I first began the job, I thought Marco Santori was like this messiah in the legal field, but I'm starting to find out him and Cooley and Argon aren't exactly what they claim to be. You know, they're they're still great and everything, but I'm I'm finding that the SAFs are kind of a different beast, and they have those same holes. Would you agree? Wow. I'm not going to say anything against Marco or Cooley because, you know, Cooley is a very good, reputable firm. Um, What I would instead say is that the SAFT was in, and for those of you who don't know, the SAFT is a simple agreement for future tokens that Cooley put out um, a couple months ago in order to try and draw a bright line between what type of token offering is a security and what kind isn't, right? And essentially what they said is, oh, if you're like pre-product, it's a security. But if you you know, have a fully functioning platform, it really isn't. Um, I and a lot of other uh, attorneys in the space have found a lot of issues and we have a lot of concerns with the SAFT instrument. Um one really good resource I would actually point you to is about two weeks ago, Cardoza Law School has something called the Blockchain Project, and they came out with a really good paper that basically explains why the SAFT is very problematic. And one of the main problems is that um, you know a lot of attorneys don't necessarily feel that there is very good justification for the law or the basis on which Cooley is um, making their arguments. They they essentially make a timing argument, right? Is it pre-functional or post-functional? But really, that doesn't really have a a very strong basis in securities law. So let me give you examples, right? Um, The Tesla Roadster, the first one, not the not this new one that Elon is coming out with, but the Tesla Roadster, that was sold via a pre-sale or every single Kickstarter Indiegogo campaign is essentially a pre-sale. You know, they're they're fundraising or crowdfunding money um, to go build a product, but those are not considered securities. They are not regulated by the SEC. Um, and this is pretty well established over, you know, a lot of conversations over the past couple years. Instead, it's regulated by the FTC, the, the Federal Trade Commission. And really, the only thing you can't do there is, you know, um, be unfair or deceptive 
in however you're marketing it. So um, from what I'm hearing, from what I'm, sorry, <laughs> my dog is like growling in the background. So from what I'm hearing, um, there are a lot of attorneys who are not using the SAFT. And in fact, I talked to a crypto hedge fund about two weeks ago and they won't invest in the SAFT. Um, one alternative model that I've heard is that people are writing stock purchase agreements that can convert into tokens. Um, but I think that we will see a lot of a lot more clarity and guidance in this space in the coming year. It's just, you know, I, I think the SEC is really trying to grapple with a lot of these issues now. But I will say that I was on a call probably about two months ago. It was hosted by the American Bar Association. Um, and there was an SEC staff attorney on the panel. And so I wrote in basically asking, like, what do you think about Coley's Bright Line? And the SEC um, uh, staff attorney basically more or less said that, you know, they appreciate Cooley's attempt to draw a bright line, but um, they're not, you know, when they look at these situations, they're not going to look at um, that there is no bright line. And really what they're looking at is the facts and circumstances of the case. Do you... Um do you think that the SEC can can even catch up with, can even stay on track with the pace of development in this space? I mean, we we have Lightning Network, which is coming on quick. Smart contracts are obviously evolving really fast. I mean, you can now have smart contracts within smart contracts, so that's a whole new level. Do you think that they should they stand a chance to keep up with it, or is it is the whole crypto community gonna have to show a real strong initiative to self regulate? moving forward so self-regulation is a would be a very good initiative uh by the community um you know setting certain standards you know to the extent that the community does self-regulate i think it does make sense for them to sit down with the sec and say hey what do you guys care about and what the sec care about at the end of the day is they don't care about the merits of your project or the merits of your campaign, how good or bad it might be, right? What they do care about is disclosure and the fact that you follow certain securities laws. And the truth is today there are a lot, of, there are a lot more securities laws that allow for um, a lot more flexibility in raising capital than there was, you know, just four years ago. Um I do think that the SEC will be able to uh, enforce uh, against certain ICOs. In fact, from what I'm hearing through the grapevine, um, you know, they they are currently investigating a lot of enforcement actions, even to the extent that they do not actually file a formal enforcement action against a particular ICO, I hear that they have a task force and that task force is very large and very busy. And to the extent that you have received a call from this task force, um, they are 
they have a list of everyone that they're calling, right? And so to the extent in the future that you are going to try and do other things with your company, for example, um, if you do want to get into compliance and do a regular plus or get listed on a license exchange or anything like that, um, it's going to be a lot tougher for those companies who have not um, complied up front. Um, you know, I, I know a lot of folks are out there running around trying to get opinion letters. <laughs> um, I've even heard of some ICOs that are firm shopping for opinion letters, um, specifically the one I'm thinking of. They went to a lot of different law firms, all of which who refused to give them an opinion letter. And then I think they got, they ended up getting one from a firm that didn't actually even specialize in the 33 Act is, you know, the, the main securities law that um, governs here. Um, and, you know, an opinion letter is only so good and it's, especially only so good if folks know that you've shopped around for that opinion letter. Um, mm -hmm. But an opinion letter basically says that uh, if your law firm was wrong, that you can sue them for malpractice. That's that's all it really does. does. Like it at all. I don't, I'm just so confused. Why call it an opinion letter? An opinion letter is when a law firm or a lawyer expresses a legal opinion on which you, the client, is going to rely, right? Um, so if they express an opinion that, um, for example, an ICO is not a security, um, you're going to presumably rely on that and then take certain actions um, because they express that opinion. Um but, you know, it it can help a little bit with regulators, but it depends a lot on the circumstances and the situations. But, you know, normally firms that issue opinion letters are very, very careful because they have their own malpractice insurance policies. And to the extent they ever get sued, their premium for their insurance policy is going to go up. So, you know... Firms that are more firms that are more reputable are going to be a lot more careful about the opinion letters that they issued. I think in the early days after the Dow Press report, firms were issuing opinion letters, but um, nowadays, from what I'm hearing, a lot of my securities attorney friends are taking several steps back and um, either will not issue them anymore or. You know, in some cases, I, I know one securities attorney, um, a very good one, and she's basically said, you know, we get so many calls now from ICO clients that if you call and leave a voicemail saying that you're looking for an opinion letter from ICO, they won't even return your call because they, they just, they don't want to sit there and fight with you and have that conversation because it sounds like you've already determined what your legal status is. You're not interested in getting legal advice. You just you know, want a letter. Yeah, they want validation of their opinion is what it is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Tell them to call me, I'll give them my opinion. I'm not really <laughs> <worried>. <laughs> So how do you, like, 
like what would you say to somebody like because the with the ICO model we've created this kind of we've lowered the barrier to entry to start start doing crowdfunding in a in a very like global decentralized way. So how do you how do you teach people to come up at least do the proper um due diligence or preparation or align themselves so that they can do this correctly before they start before they start calling like they're gonna to minimize the amount of work that you have to do it would it would be nice if we had some type of way for people to educate themselves so they can structure themselves accordingly (laughs) what where do you go to do that so here's what i'll say because i've i've had a lot of people call me um, to potentially represent in, them in an ICO. Um, ICO clients are actually very interesting because, um, well, first of all, right now, the space is so new that there's not a lot of precedent in how you should structure your token offering, right? Your lawyer isn't there just to help you get across the legal, although that's certainly part of it. The lawyer is there to make sure that you structure a good lawyer is there to make sure that you structure your offering in such a way that um, everyone is incentivized and aligned the same way. And when everything happens, hopefully as it should, that people won't be upset. Right. So you've all heard of that startup founder that, you know, five, seven years later, they exit. And, but they've accidentally given up so much of their company that even though their investors made a ton of money, they made, you know, not very much. You know, that's that's really the role of the, the, the value of a lawyer, I think, is really in structuring the deal. Now, um, part of the reason why uh, legal representation on ICOs right now is so expensive is because from what I'm hearing – a lot of these clients or issuers um, require a lot of handholding, right? I mean, I literally uh, took a call probably this past week from someone who didn't have a white paper, didn't have a concept, like it was just too early for them. So what I'll say is this, I'll, I'll talk about you know, actually following the laws and doing a compliant offering and then doing an actual good offering, right? So in terms of doing a compliant offering, it's actually not that hard. There are pre-existing rules and regulations out there that um, basically tell you who you can take money from and who you can't and how you can advertise or how you can't, right? Um, These are, a lot of these are the new crowdfunding rules. I'm not saying they're perfect, but that's what we have right now. Um, If you can just follow those rules, that is, um, then, then it's not very hard, right? The problem I find is that a lot of people don't wanna follow the rules, right? They wanna go, and raise $100 million from anyone in the world. That's what they want to do right now. When really, um, under, for example, Rule 56C, you can raise as much as you want, but from accredited investors only. 
um, or under Regulation A+, you can raise up to $50 million every 12 months from the crowd, but you have to go through this, you know, usually four to six month qualification process with the SEC. Or you can go out tomorrow and you can raise up to $1 million under regulation crowdfunding from the crowd. And you can advertise, but you're limited to a $1 million every 12 months. And you can mix and match those regulations. Um, and there is a strategy behind that. But um, but that is, you know, you can't just necessarily go out, raise money from anyone in the world um, and like do whatever you want and raise however much you want and say whatever you want. Right. And then there's actually doing a good offering. Right. Um, and I think that's really where the value of. Uh, a lot of it, a lot of attorneys come in. A lot of these securities and capital markets attorneys are structured finance attorneys, so they will sit there and help you think through the structure of your offering. Now, traditionally, with startups, it's been very simple. Oh, you do a convertible note or a safe or a priced round. Oh, you've got a cap, a discount, and maybe you have some investor rights that you negotiate. But that's pretty much it. With ICOs. Uh, because ICO issuers have tried to be a lot more creative, right? Now they're bringing game theory and economics and, you know, coins are being burned and there's staking and all this stuff. And, oh, by the way, the entire thing is capped into perpetuity or something like that. Um, it the, the added complexity um, takes a lot longer and a there's a lot more meat to kind of sort out. So what I haven't really been seeing, but I think it's starting to happen. And what I hope to see is people taking more time to actually sit down and um, write a good, clear, concise white paper, right? I mean, I've literally been in meetings up in Silicon Valley where founders will sit there and be like, oh yeah, we tried to make our white paper as not understandable as possible. And we tried to fill it with all these complex algorithms so that we could gross. sound smarter. Um, and they think, oh, if we like make it sound super complex, people will think we're super smart and just invest. And they don't really understand what we're doing. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that. The second thing is really sitting down and thinking about token economics, right? I had my intern over the summer pulled together a lot of stats on how other people were running their token economics. And when I looked at it, I was like, wow, there is literally no rhyme or reason to any of this. People are literally like taking a shot at tequila, throwing a dart against a dartboard, and up with random numbers. Um, Sounds like a great night. <laughs> I know, except maybe not so good for them in the future or the investor in the future, oh, right? sounds terrible. Um, <laughs> it makes my heart burn. <laughs> I mean, think about this. What you are putting into place, especially if it's a capped token, is you're basically trying to run a mini economy. And if you set it up or structure it in a haphazard fashion, um, what you're going to get at the end of the day, maybe one, two, three years down the road, is a mini economy that doesn't work, right? 
Um, I've heard it said that in order to really do this well, it takes a master architect and an economist and a game theorist to really sit down and think through all of this. And even then, it's really difficult, right? Because a lot of these people are just, they're going out to rush out to fundraise. But they're not thinking about like, man, what's going to happen when we scale to 5 million users? Oh, shoot, our token economic model crashes and burns. So that's another really important thing that I'm not quite yet seeing today. And then the last piece of this is token governance. Um, and by token governance, what I mean is, you know, <laughs> you would not see a startup go out and raise $200 million with no product, you know, with just a concept and they're raising for the lifetime of their entire project. Like that doesn't happen in the startup world. And for very good reason, right? Like you have to meet milestones, you have to show traction, you have to show growth, all of these things in order to get more money. So to me, there's really no reason why an ICO should fundraise for the entirety of their project in one fell swoop. I don't think it's a bad thing to go out and raise money in different stages, right? you know, ICO1, ICO2, ICO3. And at the same time, to the extent that people are fundraising that way, um, I think they should really think about, well, you know, shouldn't there at least be certain milestones that we have to meet, right? So for example, if you look at uh, the block stack uh, ICO, you know, although ambitious, one good thing is that they put two milestones into place and they said, hey, if we don't meet these milestones, we have to return the money. And I won't get into right now the logistics of <laughs> returning money because that seems to be very complicated. But, you know, that's that's a good faith thing, right? Some people have said, hey, if we don't meet the milestones on a roadmap, you'll return the money. Or, hey, if our project fails and we're never able to deliver that, we will return the money. But you shouldn't just sit there and be like, wow, we're going to go out and hunt unicorns and drive Ferraris if, you know, we don't actually do anything with your money like that. That should not be the case. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, I, I like that. Amy, how, how bad is it? Are, are people confused about whether or not they're buying tokens or buying into an ICO? Are we still at that level? Well, um I think it depends on which crowd you talk to, right? Um, certainly when you're talking to all these, this huge influx of new people that's now buying into crypto, um, I, I don't think that they understand very much. Um, I do think that the folks who have been involved in the crypto community for a while now uh, kind of have an understanding of whether they're buying cryptocurrency versus an ICO, the problem is I don't, I, I definitely think they don't understand whether they're buying a security or a non-security, right? Um, you know, I, I agree with, um, you know, what the SEC has said. And I think a lot of my security attorney friends agree that uh, it is possible to have a token sale or an ICO that is a utility and is not 
um, a security. The problem we find is that the the even if you have a utility token, the way people are structuring the economics of their utility token and the way they're advertising it and all these things that they're they're doing in in creating the utility token, they're not treating it as a true utility, right? They are going out, they're saying invest in this, the value is gonna rise, let's go sell a million of these to VCs. Like VCs are there to make investments. They're not there to buy a hundred cars or you know, a hundred thousand transmission devices or, you know, a hundred thousand widgets, you know, that's um, to, to actually use on your platform. So that's where things tend to go wrong. And, um, you know, like I said, going back to the basic token economic structure, you know, a lot of this really falls onto how you're structuring the token. Like, I do believe that there are pure utility tokens. I feel like I've seen one or two. I know my attorney friends have seen one or two. Um, but the vast majority of people are not structuring it like a pure utility. I think that provides so much clarity to our audience and just people in general. Uh, that's an easy, I guess you could call it a, a, a cheat sheet to deciding if a token is a utility or security. Is like, why would you buy 150,000 ratchets? You don't necessarily need 150,000 ratchets, unless you're Lowe's, maybe. <laughs> you're going to sell them. Yeah. But I think that, that, that provides a lot of clarity. Thank you for that. Transactional confidence. All right, I think that's a that's a great way to kind of like wrap up this interview, and then we have uh, one more question to to kind of top things off. And uh, I'm quite curious to see how you answer it. It's it's uh, in ten words or less. Can you describe blockchain? <laughs> oh God, uh, that's a challenge. Yeah. Oh man, <laughs> um, that was the best reaction of all time. <laughs> <sighs> this is very trite but I'm going to try a distributed ledger on acid, right? right. It's, it's, it's got so many more functionalities than a regular ledger. That's mm. if I had to do 10 words or less, you know, that's, that's the whole point is to try and force <laughs> you to, to get to something. <laughs> are we talking about like that Woodstock acid? Or are we talking about this new stuff? The crazy kids are using? Mm. Oh, man, I don't even know. What are the new kids using? I <laughs> couldn't tell you. <laughs> we just assumed them young whippersnappers are doing something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, well, thank you, Amy, for stopping by. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on the show. <laughs>